You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Ware. You are listening to the fourth and final historical episode of the podcast, where we have primarily examined how democratic presidential campaigns have related to faith in the 21st century. The idea being that this would help us lay a context out for 2020 and provide us with a shared vocabulary for the conversation we'll have over the next 16 months or so. In the first two episodes, we spoke with Amy Sullivan, who walked us through 2004 and the Democratic resurgence in 2006. Last episode, we spoke with Joshua Dubois, who oversaw religious affairs for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign, and so we discussed that historic effort. Now, in this episode, we're going to look at 2012 and 2016. We have an incredible guest to help us with our task this week, and that's the wonderful Amy Chozik of the New York Times, and we'll talk to her soon about both presidential elections. First, though, I want to pull out a few key takeaways from the 2012 campaign where I led religious outreach for Barack Obama's re-election. We have to move forward to the future we imagined in 2008, where everyone gets a fair shot, and everyone does their fair share, and everyone plays by the same rules. That's the choice in this election, and that's why I'm running for a second term as President of the United States. I have come to view 2012 as a kind of way station, a middle point between 2008 and 2016. There are some obvious reasons for this. Barack Obama won in 2012, but by a smaller margin than he won in 2008. And of course, Democrats lost in 2016. But going a bit deeper, if 2008 was a campaign of aspiration, of open doors, of going after every possible voter, 2012 was something less than that. The faith outreach operation in 2012 was robust. We had staff at the DNC, staff at Obama campaign headquarters where I was. We worked across departments. We had state operations that worked with us on faith outreach. We had merchandise, as we discussed with Joshua Dubois in the last episode. This was really important. It helped people of faith find a place for themselves and see a place for themselves in the campaign. From the time of our nation's founding, people of faith have shaped America. Throughout our history, faith has been a powerful force for good in our communities and our families. So faith isn't just a footnote in our nation's story. It reinforces the very essence of America. We had a People of Faith for Obama website, which had a a similar purpose. The president did interviews with faith-based publications, and we had direct messaging to People of Faith. We launched Catholics for Obama, and the president and first lady spoke to major faith gatherings. You know, faith-based groups like Eastside Community Ministry carry a particular meaning for me, because in a way, they are what led me to public service. It was a Catholic group that in part funded the work I did many years ago in Chicago to help lift neighborhoods that were devastated by the closure of a local steel plant. Still, in 2012, Faith Outreach did not have the institutional footprint that it did in 2008. Now, there are some reasons for this. Some are just built into what a re-election campaign is and means. The president had a staff and operations at the White House. 
We no longer had to introduce Barack Obama to faith communities in 2012. Campaign for a re-election is uh, more about sort of re-engaging and carrying through on long-standing relationships. So that was different. We also saw increasing friction with various faith communities and really a, cl- a closing of the imagination of some people for what faith outreach could look like, given how the first term of Barack Obama's presidency had played out. When I arrived to the campaign in May of 2012 uh, from the White House, it was two weeks after Barack Obama had announced his support for same-sex marriage. We were in the midst of multiple years of controversy and Catholic organizations and institutions accusing the president of waging a war on religion, principally uh, due to the HHS uh, contraception mandate. And so we did not have a blank slate or anywhere near a blank slate that we had in 2008. Some voters who wanted to learn more about Barack Obama in 2008, for instance, felt like they knew enough. And now that led a lot of voters to support him. (laughs) But it also meant that there were some voters. When we're talking about the faith community, we're we're talking about sort of moderate to conservative voters who some of them we just knew were not on the table this time around. And so the question that uh, really I had to ask and that the campaign had to ask was, what voters are we going after? To what extent is our posture going to be defensive, protecting as many of the gains that we had seen in 2008 as possible versus going after new voters, going after persuasion targets? One thing that really changed the game and allowed me to move from a more defensive posture and frankly, a posture that was uh, most focused on turnout and making sure that voters that were going to be with us had all the tools and motivation they needed to turn out to the polls. One thing that allowed us to sort of re-expand our imagination actually came as, a, as something of a gift from the Romney campaign, and that was his selection of Paul Ryan. Better days. It's an honor to announce my running mate and the next vice president of the United States, Paul Ryan. Ironically, it was Mitt Romney's selection of Catholic Paul Ryan that opened up new opportunities for us with Catholics. It's important to understand, it is difficult as a Republican to pick a Republican running mate that doesn't just have sort of neutral standing with religious groups. That's that's pretty common. It's difficult to pick a running mate who's going to cost you something with major religious institutions in broad swaths of the faith community. Mitt Romney picked a candidate uh, running mate and Paul Ryan, whose signature achievement, the, the thing he was most proud of, the thing that he championed, was his budget plan. Now, this is a Ryan's budget that he advanced when he was in the House is something that catalyzed just reams of press releases from, for instance, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, the National Council of Churches, international aid groups uh, like Catholic Relief Services, like Islamic Relief, like Jewish World Service, like World Vision. 
I mean, so much of the faith community was already on the record opposing the principal thing Paul Ryan was known for. This meant that I had ample ammunition, well, to tell a positive story about the fact that President Obama stood with faith-based groups and pushing back against the worst of these cuts. And it also expanded the values debate in that election. It helped to broaden the debate in a way that we weren't just talking about what those who opposed President Obama wanted to talk about, but, but it was a more holistic conversation. And that's something that we were able to lean into. Now, Barack Obama, of course, won that election. He won the Catholic vote, which he did in 2008. The Democratic nominee, as we've discussed in 2004, did not do. And according to the exit polls that came out directly after the election, there's been some sort of academic conversation and sort of revisitation of the statistics to suggest that maybe Hillary Clinton eked out the Catholic vote, but the initial CNN exit polls showed Hillary Clinton losing the Catholic vote. We saw Barack Obama, uh, you know, to go back to the idea that 2012 was kind of a way station. Barack Obama did not uh, get a quarter of the white evangelical vote in 2012, as he did in 2008. He did get more than one out of five white evangelicals. We'd see in 2016 Hillary Clinton getting, as far as I know, a a historic low of 16% of the white evangelical vote, which amounts to millions of votes swinging to the Republican. That's 2012. I would urge you, if you want to learn more, you can purchase my book, Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the future of faith in America, where I discuss the intersection of faith and the career of Barack Obama, uh, the presidency of Barack Obama, and the campaigns of Barack Obama. And so some of what I've discussed is in the book. Much of what I had to leave out is in the book. So if you want to get a more uh, fulsome uh, conversation of, of 2012, you can you can certainly pick that up. And then obviously, as we move forward into discussing 2020, I'm looking forward to drawing on my experiences and what I saw during my time on the 2012 campaign to shed light on what's happening in 2020. That is the point of this podcast, after all. All right, when we get back, I'm going to introduce you to Amy Chozik. Amy is going to talk to us about 2012 and also about 2016. This conversation is really far-reaching and really we're able to delve into so much of Amy's expertise and what makes her one of the most respected journalists in the country. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm happy to introduce to you uh, our guest for this episode, the one and only Amy Chozik. Amy Chozik is a writer at large for the New York Times, where she writes long form pieces on the personalities and power struggles in business, politics, and media. Uh, Amy is the author of uh, Chasing Hillary. Chasing Hillary, 10 years, two presidential campaigns, and one intact glass ceiling, which is a book based on her years of reporting on Hillary Clinton's two presidential campaigns. Amy is 
like I said before, uh, in the last segment, one of the most respected journalists. I followed her for a very long time and trusted her reporting uh, on the 2008 campaign through 2012. And obviously, she was one of the essential voices in 2016. Amy, prior to being writer at large for the Times, was national political reporter. Uh, she also worked at the Wall Street Journal for eight years, where she was a foreign correspondent and then reported on the Iowa caucus and the 2008 campaign. In 2017, Amy received the William Randolph Hearst Fellows Award for overall achievement in journalism. She's also the recipient of a front page award for beat reporting, and she's been recognized by the Society for Feature Journalism Excellence in Features Writing Competition. Amy also served as a consultant on the Netflix political drama House of Cards, which is pretty incredible. She advised writers on the development of the female journalist characters, was recently profiled in Vogue and Cosmopolitan, and interviewed on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I'm so happy that Amy is on this podcast, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. And with that, here's Amy Chosick. Well, we're here with Amy Chosick. Amy, thank you so much for joining the Faith 2020 podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I've really been looking forward to this conversation with you. As as you know, this is sort of our last conversation um, for this podcast. Looking back, starting uh, uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be uh, focusing on 2020, but really want to help folks get a sense of the the landscape and just how faith uh, operated in presidential campaigns, particularly in, in this century so far. And there are a few people better qualified to help tell that story than, than you. want to ask you about 2016 and Hillary's campaign, which you have an excellent book about chasing Hillary um, and obviously did extensive reporting on. But first, I want to talk about 2012. Now, uh, we've already discussed on this podcast quite a bit the Obama side of that equation and interested in any insights you have there. But also want to talk about uh, want to talk about Mitt Romney and how interesting uh, uh, Faith uh, was in his campaign. Uh, I think about 2012 is kind of a midway point between 2008 and 2016, not just chronologically, but in terms of how the campaigns operated. You wrote this fascinating story just days before the election about how Glenn Beck uh, was acting as a bridge between Romney and evangelical Christians. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what you found in, in that reporting uh, about the role Beck was playing? Yeah, I had to dig back into the archives for this one, but it was really interesting. And you're right. I remember it being right before the election and, you know, a lot of discussion here of whether like, you know, right before the election, you're very conscious of kind of what stories you write and what kind of impact they could have. And I remember discussing this story about about Glenn Beck, who had been, um, you know, kind of quiet about the election. Let's just uh, clarify, he was much more influential then. I think his influence has kind of went, he had left Fox News, but he still had an enormous reach in his own channel. And I think the blaze is sort of uh, not as influential as it used to be, but then it really was. And I thought it was interesting with Romney. It was like, we didn't really talk about his Mormonism, you know, it just like, wasn't one way or the other. It wasn't, wow, this would be historic. And it wasn't, oh, this could be a problem. I just felt like it was like a non-entity for a long time until you got down to the nitty gritty of the 
election and where Republicans hope to win. And that was largely maintaining that support among white evangelical Protestants. Um, And so when you kind of dug down into that, and I actually, you know, learned a lot reporting this story about the kind of deep-rooted tensions between Mormons and evangelical Christians and the, the, the feeling that if those kind of persisted at the voting booth, that could really be a problem for Romney. Um, and, and Glenn Beck, who, of course, is Mormon, had um, helped him bridge that, um, had, uh, you know, in the, in the final days before the campaign, really kind of dug into his faith and said that he's an honorable man, that he trusts him, that he, you know, and he also kind of got into some of the, I'm, I'm looking at the article now, but the like stereotypes of the magic underwear and the, and polygamy. And, 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 and so it was an interesting moment in which, you know, Glenn Beck was using his influence to help Romney, but he was also using his platform to kind of clarify things about a religion that had been very stereotyped and in a way that Glenn Beck hadn't, hadn't really done before about himself. So it was sort of an interesting inflection point in the race. And I think it also signaled to a lot of evangelicals that, you know, the Glenn Beck program was the third most popular talk news radio show at the time after Rush Limbaugh and Hannity. And so it really signaled to this very wide base of evangelical listeners that, you know, this guy is one of us. You can trust him. Um, there's nothing wrong with his Mormonism, nothing that's not in line with our own our own values. Yeah. And right. So you also mentioned the work of, you know, Mark DeMoss, who's been this really interesting figure in conservative evangelical politics. Mark DeMoss was actually the, the principal evangelical advisor on the Romney campaign in 2012 and like served that role of helping evangelicals become comfortable with the idea of a Mormon nominee and, and, you know, in, in their hopes, a Mormon president, Mark DeMoss was also uh, someone who uh, was a very vocal anti-Trumper. He actually ended up leaving the board of Liberty university. Um, And so it's, what's really interesting to me about this dynamic is, uh, when we look ahead to 2016, how much some of the same kinds of tools uh, were used to help evangelicals become comfortable with Romney uh, that would then later be used to help evangelicals become comfortable with Trump. And, you know, by the exit polls, you have to say, you know, both efforts were, were relatively, uh, relatively successful. Amy, before we move to 2016, are there any 2012 was such a, I mean, obviously I find it interesting, but, you know, Barack Obama heads into this election being uh, accused of waging a war on religion. Uh, we had the war on religion, war on women sort of back and forth. Is there, is there any, other, any other key sort of like faith factors that you think of when you look back on 2012? Well, it's interesting. You, I know you had Joshua Dubois on. I, I remember writing about him back in 2008 and this idea that young evangelicals could be motivated by more than what we kind of traditionally think of as abortion or, or some of these kind of key lightning rod issues that how, if you're about protecting the earth, then you're going to be attracted to a candidate who's about climate change, who's for climate change. Um, and and so I think that there was this movement by Joshua to get uh, at least young evangelicals to come onto the Obama bandwagon. I don't think that happened in as big a numbers as they had hoped. And of course, in 2012, uh, Obama did lose those white evangelical voters. But I also think we're so often kind of biased towards talking about white religious voters. And I think that that 
uh, obscures all of the black churches that I went to every single Sunday on the campaign trail. And this just huge devotion among um, black voters, not just for Obama, but then also uh, also for Hillary in 2016. And so I think so much of the conversation about um, religious voters is sort of code for white when there are uh, obviously very devoted religious black voters, uh, Catholic, Hispanics, um, you know, who are drawn to Democrats or voting for totally different reasons than these kind of the Glenn Beck listener, so to, so to speak. <laughs> By the way, Glenn Beck is a great example of someone who was a never Trumper and who has now completely come full circle. Um, and I think there've been articles wondering if kind of the economics of his program really taking a hit ha- had to do, had to do, I wouldn't want to like, you know, that motivation in his mouth, but that's certainly been people have been wondering, like, can a can a conservative talk show that is anti-Trump, you know, what is that? What is the audience for that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the economic incentives, uh, unfortunately, you know, move in the churches as much as they move uh, anywhere else sometimes. Uh, to, but you're absolutely right. The Democratic Party is at least two thirds religious. Uh, that is a diverse religious constituency. And Hillary Clinton um, is someone with a religious story to tell. Religion has been important in in her life. And uh, as you reported in the early days of her campaign, she was speaking to faith in ways that surprised some people. And in Iowa, she was asked sort of how the Ten Commandments would influence uh, would influence her presidency and gave an answer that, you know, was, was in the press similar to how, you know, Pete Buttigieg's uh, recent statements have, have driven conversation. But can, can you tell us, as one of the reporters who knows Hillary better than anyone, just talk to us a little bit about what Hillary brought to the table in terms of her her history with faith, not just politically, but but personally, and then we'll t- you know talk about how that played out in the actual uh, presidential campaign. Yeah, well, this is uh, one of the things that frustrated me about covering Hillary is that I knew um, that she is a deep deep person of deep faith. In 2008, I would see her reading the Bible on the campaign plane late at night. Um, If you go to church with her, she quotes scripture, you know, you'd think she was a Sunday school teacher, which she actually was, you know, I think if there's anything that like, if there's anything that really defines her, it's her Methodism. Um, And I think you can trace that through everything. I think, you know, people say, why did she stay with her husband? Well, she was, she's a person of deep faith. Um, I think a lot of her politics are reading rooted in the social gospel um, that she talks about uh, quoting quoting a lot of the Methodist thinkers on the to- on the topic I mean I think in another you know world I could have seen her as a theologian at Princeton you know, because she really she really thinks about faith deeply she is incredibly religious and I think that this is something that frustrated me because she never wanted to show that side. And people close to her told me, well, they're just going to say she's pandering if she starts, you know, sounding like church lady on the campaign trail. And that actually that her faith is so deeply personal that she didn't want to throw it around on the campaign trail and have it be sort of diminished as pandering. So you mentioned this moment in Iowa, which was really, you know, these 
these high school gym events that they just kind of blur into another, but there's certain ones you remember. And I remember this one because uh, it was a very genuine response to this question about, about the core of Christ's message. And, and Hillary is talking about, she says, my study of the Bible and my conversations with people of faith has led me to believe that most, the most important commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. She, she goes on and on about this in a very, um, you know, stream of consciousness way yeah. about what her faith means and the Sermon on the Mount and all of these things. And we just all sort of looked up from our laptops and thought, oh, that's not in the talk. That's not in the prepared speech. That's interesting. Yeah, right. Um, and so, yes, it was a frustration that that's sort of like I, I called it an a St. Hillary just kind of yeah. reared its head only so often. And we used to go to church with her every Sunday to the point where my mom was like, it's Yom Kippur. Are you sure you want to be going to church? <laughs> 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 Hillary, I was like, well, it's my job. I got to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but she, um, you know, and she would always open these um, churches with, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be, let us be glad, rejoice and be glad. Yeah, in it. Gotta right. give a, um, yeah. So she was very comfortable in these, in these um, houses of worship, whether it was, and actually really, whether it was a synagogue or a, or a, or a black church in Brooklyn, she was very comfortable around uh, people of faith. And I think that just didn't, I mean, maybe it's because we are so sort of, I don't want to say biased, but we're so sort of like prejudged towards Hillary. It's always like, it's always political. It's always like calculated. And I think that she never had a really comfortable way of taking that, you know, a, into a, to show a wider audience, for instance, in a debate or, or, you know, in a big speech. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, I, I often thought, you know, how much of it was her feeling like she had already been rejected. You know, there, there's the, uh, the, the famous speech that she gave about, you know, a politics of love and, you know, even looking at like her Wellesley uh, uh, commencement and she just kept on getting rebuffed when, she would try to speak to, I don't know, the, the spiritual side of politics. Uh, uh, and, you know, maybe she she overlearned the lesson. It, it wasn't it, from your sense, like a like a like a personal choice or or was it that and a combination of, you know, like a Robbie Mook sort of like, you know, like data driven, you know, th- these are this is not worth our time. Yeah, I mean, I think you touch on two things. One is the thing is Hillary sort of always overcorrects. You know, it's like, well, we didn't lean into gender in 2008. So in 2016, we'll be all about being the first woman. So I think um, so I think on one hand, she um, she does tend to overcorrect. And there is I mean, I could talk about this forever, but there is a kind of pivotal moment in her career when she gives this speech that you mentioned the politics of meaning her father was about to die in Arkansas, and she had promised to give this speech in Austin that she couldn't that she couldn't cancel and when she got there she gave this really interesting kind of new agey rooted in the social gospel uh speech and I recommend you know if your listeners are interested because it's really one of the one of the strangest and most profound speeches a first lady's ever given and I think it was very genuine um about the politics of meaning um in our own lives and and it was um she was widely ridiculed um, by the left and the right. I mean, they said the first lady's coat of crazy colors. I think the Atlantic said, I mean, she just sounded like she did sound like new agey and it was a weird 
speech for the first lady to give, but I loved it. And I thought it really I spoke to the lead. I mean, you're like, oh my God, you're brilliant. Like, a, like you're like a deep philosophical thinker. Like, what is this? And so, uh, but she was widely ridiculed, including in the New York Times. There's a, there was a famous New York Times magazine story um, by Michael Kelly with Hillary on the front um, in a white, in a white suit and it said St. Hillary. And uh, it was kind of a demeaning in tone. I think that they really, they were really scarred by that story for a very long time. And actually a little known fact, she didn't wear white. She didn't wear all white for years until, until she finally 2016, of course the suffragettes wore all white and she finally wore all white when she got the nomination. Um, but for years she was so scarred by that cover that she was like, I'm not wearing all white. They're going to call me St. Hillary. They're going to make fun of me. Um, so I do think it was a little bit of like, and the press is just going to sneer at the cynical press is just going to sneer at this. So why am I even yeah. going to try? Sure. Um, That's fascinating. And we will link to that speech for, for listeners who want to check it out. Um, you know, it wasn't just – well, I, I guess a quick thing I'll, I'll say is the, the Clintons, both Bill and Hillary, their prowess with the religious community was something that followed me into the White House when I was working for Obama. I mean, just a quick, like, uh, when we would uh, be meeting with the National Prayer Breakfast people every year to, to you know, to staff that, they would always remind us – you, you know, after we told them that the president would have to leave uh, following the, the last prayer, they would say, you know, the Clintons used to hang around for three, four hours and make sure every <laughs> every hand was, was shaken and they would attend side meetings and pray with people. Uh, and, and it was just like, well, well, yeah, that's not us, but but it was them. And for so many of these religious leaders, it, it, it was them. They had an expectation and a history with Hillary of with quite a bit of personal time and attention and respect. Um, I, I think capital that helped her in 2008, although it obviously didn't carry the day and that wasn't brought over rhetorically as much as it could. But I guess the, the last kind of area I want to discuss with you is just sort of structurally in the campaign you you wrote this, you know, probably the the article I've cited most <laughs> over the last couple of years. You wrote an article just days after the uh, the election, uh, Hillary Clinton's expectations and her ultimate campaign missteps. Uh, this was on November 9th. And you opened that article with an incredible anecdote that was really striking to a lot of the people I, I work with um, uh, about a St. Patrick's Day gathering uh, at the University of Notre Dame. W- would you mind just just uh, sort of recapping that that story? And then tell us, like, do you think that that's a, a window into how the, the Clinton campaign's failures or was this like a one-off kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one, I wrote that story, you know, it was November 9th. So it was like, we're all just like, what the hell just happened? (laughs) Hillary lost, like write a story about it. And so I do think, I think, well, that story is accurate. It obviously gets at a lot of the issues the campaign has. I just want to caveat that, like, we learned later about more of the influence of some of these outside forces, like the Russians, uh, Russian interference and all of those things. So this was definitely a story of like, how did Hillary lose these three states with these white working class voters? And like, what was their thinking on that? And so, but yes, absolutely. I think it gets at some of the problems that the campaign had. For one, they had envisioned this 
block of voters, the Hillary coalition, which was basically, we're going to pick up most of Obama's voters and we're going to add white women, suburban women, um, suburban women who, you know, maybe vote along the lines of Republican or independent, but are going to be excited by the first female president. So I think they did not emphasize, I mean, throughout my book and throughout my coverage, Bill Clinton would be on conference calls saying like, we can't ignore these voters who helped me win in 92 and 94. And these, we've got to, we've got to win these, we've got to win these, sorry, 92, 96. We've got to win these um, white working class voters. And I think Robbie and some of the younger data driven guys in the campaign were like, yeah, those guys are never, those voters are never coming back. You know, we need to, we need to galvanize the Obama coalition and young voters and people of color. And so uh, this was like the most evocative example to me because I know it really angered some of my Irish sources. And these are, you know, prominent Irish, you know, prominent Irish Democrats were, were, were pretty angered when they pressed for Hillary to come do this event that Obama and, and Biden and Bill Clinton had all done and were dismissed um, by her campaign as like, yeah, white Catholics are just not who we're trying to reach right now. Um, which just like, yeah, I think sent like a pang through a lot of people when they read that, 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 that given, given how the campaign ended up um, turned. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, structurally they brought on uh, a faith uh, staffer, in I believe June or maybe even early July, John McCarthy, who you know I, I've said that John McCarthy is probably the person I would have hired, um, but, but I would have hired him a year earlier. <laughs> um, uh, he really came on, really came on late. But but then, like you said, it isn't just about sort of conservative white Catholics or, or white evangelicals. You know, I, I think there's um, a level of analysis on whether. You know the dro- the drop we saw in turnout among some of the Obama coalition was tied to uh, just how how much faith outreach uh, Hillary was doing. Um, so I would love your comments on that. But then but, but there was one element of faith outreach that the Clinton campaign executed really intensely just weeks out before the election. And that was toward Mormons to kind of take the conversation full circle. They made a decision to sort of ask for Mormons votes in a way that they hadn't done for any other faith group in the country, really. Hillary penned an op-ed in the Deseret, the Deseret News. They released a full video, which was, uh, you know, a direct appeal to Mormon voters. And so interested also in sort of what you what you thought led them to, to make that decision to, to do such explicit faith outreach in that in that scenario when um, outside of particularly around the South Carolina primary against Bernie and, you know, the dynamics there are really interesting, um, that they hadn't really done intensive faith outreach. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, going to be exasperating for people who wanted Hillary to win, because I think the campaign saw an opening in Arizona and Utah. I mean, she was very much putting a, at least, at least trying for Utah with that, um, with that op-ed. I remember that period. And she of course went to Arizona, no Democrat, no Democrats. I think 14 of the last 15 presidential elections have gone Republican in Arizona, but she saw, you know, the West as, as a place where she could pick up, she could pick up States. And of course this just like makes people cringe because meanwhile we didn't go to Wisconsin during the general election and, you know, could have spent more time in rural Pennsylvania. Um, she did work very hard in Pennsylvania, but mostly in 
Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and the urban areas, um, even as Ed Rendell and others were pushing her to spend more time in the in the rural parts of the state. Um, and Michigan, of course, she lost in the primary and, uh, and just kind of presumed she'd win. But right up until the end, they did get a little worried about Michigan and sent Obama there. But like, this is the frustration. It's like, really, you were expanding to Mormons in Utah. Meanwhile, you like weren't going to speak at Notre Dame at this like Notre Dame at this um, at this event for white Catholics. So, um, yeah, I think that was partly just miscalculation on their on their campaign's part. As I think about the aftermath of the election. You know, I do think, you know, the Russians play a role, but, you know, we started this podcast, uh, you know, the entire series talking about Kerry in 2004. And after 2004, you know, Mary Beth Cahill came out and said that it was probably their missteps with Catholics that cost them the election. I did find it interesting to see that really Hillary's first public event following the election, or at least the first event of her book tour, you know, she could have gone anywhere. She went to uh, a church in New York. She went to Riverside, which seemed to me, you know, maybe it's because I'm, you know, too focused on, on this slice of things, but seemed to me like an indication that she thought that she had something more to offer to the faith conversation that maybe she didn't feel she she had the um, the, the, the uh, ability or, you know, the experience of, of doing during the presidential campaign. Do, do you think that there's regret on her part for how she handled some of the like uh, appeals to values appeals to faith during the campaign do you think she'd do this any differently if she could do it over again i mean to be honest i sort of you know i covered both her presidential campaigns and then i covered the inauguration when she was watching donald trump's sworn and that was sort of the bookend of my covering hillary so i have not talked to people about like do you wish you did this differently or do you regret this i sort of closed you know, I'm covering a lot of different things now, which I, I like, and I have kind of closed the chapter on that. I mean, I think yeah, <laughs> it was time, um, but I didn't even realize that this was for her, her What Happened book. She started it at, at Riverside. Yeah, yeah, she started at, at Riverside. Oh, yeah. I remember. I think I remember people going there and being like, thank God I'm not there. <laughs> but I do remember her speaking there um, before she spoke there with. She's spoken there before. Um, uh, yeah. So, and I'm sure, I mean, I don't know. I, I, she said this, that she's relied on prayer uh, to get, to get over 2016. And I'm, I'm sure that's true. Um, she kind of jokes that she does yoga and Chardonnay, you know, drinks a lot of Chardonnay, but I am sure that her faith has, has really steered her through that devastating loss. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being with us. What are you working on these days and how could our listeners, you know, stay up on, on you and your work? Oh, thanks so much for asking. I am, um, well, I write features for the Times, so I'm lucky that I get to write about all kinds of topics. I just recently had a big story about an artist named Peter Max, who, uh, it's, it's hard to explain. It was a crazy story about his dementia and people in his life that were taking advantage of of him. Um, and so that is, it was in the Sunday business section. A lot of my stuff appears in the Sunday. 
I loved your article on Shannon Watts. I thought that was oh, great. Thanks. That was fun. That was fun. She's an you, amazing you person. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I thought I'd get way more, way more uh, NRA kind of trolls on that, but it was mostly positive. So, but yeah, so I don't write as obviously as frequently as when I was filing news constantly for the campaign, but they're more longer form. And uh, I'd love for your readers to follow me on Twitter and check them out. Absolutely. We'll, we'll make sure they get all of your information. Amy, thanks so much for uh, uh, helping our listeners uh, get a sense of where we've been so that we could head into 2020 with, with a bit of context and uh, so appreciate your work. Yeah, so great talking to you. Thanks. Now I want to go listen to the whole season. <laughs> great. Thanks so much. Thanks Amy. a lot. Take care. Bye. Again, that was Amy Chozik. What a wonderful conversation. You could follow Amy Chozik on Twitter, at Amy Chozik. Be sure to pick up her book, Chasing Hillary. That's one of the most insightful reads, not just on 2016, but on trajectory and presidential campaigns of one of the most influential, important political leaders in this country, in in this century, and for much of the last century. Really an an icon through whose career we can learn much about American politics as it was and as it is. Amy is reporting for the New York Times, and you can follow her work there as well. I'll tell you, I really enjoyed and wasn't expecting uh, the conversation about the politics of meaning, uh, that speech that Hillary Clinton gave, and think it just applies to so much of the conversation we're hearing in 2020 at this moment. I mean, think about the coverage of someone like Beto. Uh, Think of what we're seeing from someone like Cory Booker, the campaign and trajectory of Elizabeth Warren, and just so much is rooted in some of that, that history that Amy just really helped us walk through. All right, folks, that's the whole set. The next time you hear from the Faith 2020 podcast, we're going to be talking about 2020. So looking forward to that and glad that we got to that point and thrilled that we were able to walk through these really four presidential elections together. Again, would ask you to subscribe to the Faith 2020 podcast on iTunes. Uh, You could listen to us on Spotify, a lot of the places where you'd want to listen to podcasts. That's where we are. Would urge you to follow the AND campaign and the crux in the call where you'll be able to get updates uh, on this work. I, I'd also urge you to check out my Substack. And the reason why I say that is um, I, through my Substack, we send out uh, not, not too much, but regular content. If you pay to subscribe, And by the way, a paid subscription helps to support this work, helps to support, obviously, the work of the Substack. We provide a curated content and exclusive analysis on 2020, politics, and faith. And then also, I I enjoy throwing in some recipes and and some lighter topics in as well. But that's really a place where I direct you to if, if you... Uh, don't like waiting in between episodes to get your 2020 fix. That's Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Again, that's reclaiminghope.substack.com. And would really encourage you to subscribe and follow us there. Well, that's the conclusion of these historical episodes. When we get back, we're going to be talking about 2020 featuring interviews with top politicians 
journalists, religious leaders who will help us understand and see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. See you next episode. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Anne Campaign. Learn more about the Anne Campaign by visiting annecampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. Our guest this week was Amy Chozik, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. Look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.